Good morning, and may it please the court. My name is Benjamin Butler. I'm an assistant state public defender, and I represent the appellant Nigeria Harvey. This court must reverse Mr. Harvey's conviction because the evidence against him was illegally obtained and improperly admitted, and because the state illegally struck a person of color from the jury pool. I'd like to discuss what is issues one and three in our brief today, the search of the cell phone location information and the Batson issue. I'd be happy to answer questions about the Fry Mac issue if the court has them. Uh, the police illegally obtained Mr. Harvey's cell phone location information because federal and state law require the police to have a warrant supported by probable cause to believe that the location information will provide evidence of a crime. That's been true in Minnesota since 2014 when our legislature passed a comprehensive uh, statutory scheme for obtaining this information. Counsel, can I just ask you one preliminary issue, uh, one question about this, this issue? Um, the district court, I mean, you raised an issue involving the, the, um, the states obtaining the cell phone records in the district court. Um, and, and I'm just wondering, so other than the reference in the transcript where the court denies your, is there any other written order in the record where the trial court, the district court, considered and ruled on your motion? There is not, Your Honor. You have the entire, uh, the entire ruling is that brief uh, denied, uh, to which the defense attorney asked the judge, well, did you read any of the stuff that we submitted? Because that seems pretty perfunctory. And the judge said, I read it, denied. That is the entirety of the ruling. Um, so we have this two-part scheme uh, in Minnesota. Under 626A28, the police can get non-location data uh, for less than probable cause. Um, but under 626A42, I'm going to be back up, 626A28 does not allow um, the police to obtain location data expressly in the statute. That's subdivision 3, paren D. Um, if the police want location data, they have to use 626A42. And now we know that those requirements by our legislature are enshrined in the United States Constitution. Because in Carpenter in 2018, that's exactly what the United States Supreme Court held. You need a warrant supported by probable cause because a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy in the vast amount of information the available. Counsel, in the court order, was there not a probable cause determination? Yes, Your Honor. The form order that the signing judge signed contains some boilerplate language about probable cause. And we can discuss that. I would say there's two problems with that. One is a substantive problem, which is, of course, our position is there was no probable cause. But more importantly, that order was issued under 626A28, which does not allow uh, the police to obtain location data, probable cause or not. They have to use a different statute if they want location data, and here they did not. So, counsel, do you think it's um, that the court should focus more on the statute that's cited rather than the language that's in the order? I think, the, I think this court, Your Honor, should focus on the, the whole picture, um, the four corners of the application and the warrant, uh, sorry, warrant, the order, um, all of which make clear um, under what statutory provision um, law enforcement was seeking this data and under what statutory provision the signing judge, um, Judge Klein, um, granted it. And those documents are clear that it's 28, um, and 28 is clear that it doesn't allow location data. Um, in addition... Counsel, could you, could you help me and, and walk through what's missing? Because I think the state's argument is that well, we got the numbers wrong, we didn't cite the right statute, but, and this is part of Justice McKaig's question, I think, mm -hmm. but substantively, the information that's required under 626A.42, it looks like subdivision two, the tracking warrant section, mm -hmm. substantively, it's there. Walk me through, I know you referenced it in the brief, but walk me through what you think is not there. Sure. Um, so that, for, that the statute requires. No, I understand. Um, First of all, I understand that argument, I do. Um, and I think the, the problem with it is it's a matter of what box are we in. It's one thing to say under a certain framework, for example, um, uh, a search without a warrant um, is based on an objective standard. So whether the police had reasonable articulable suspicion is an objective standard. We don't care what the subjective belief of the officer is and the theories, the objective theories can shift over time. Here, 
we're talking about putting a, a warrant or an order issued under one statutory authority into a different statutory authority. So I think that's a very different question than, oh, did they just get the numbers wrong? Um, we're talking about the rule of law here, and the rule of law matters. Um, but to your, to your point, um, you know, our position is that there was no probable cause um, for, this, for this order, uh, particularly as it comes to location data. Now, there might have been for subscriber information, um, because the police knew that uh, from the surviving victim that, uh, uh, that this call, uh, the phone they had, the decedent's phone, had called this phone number uh, about seven minutes, the last call is about seven minutes before the murder. So it's very reasonable that the police would want to know whose phone is this. And that's subscriber information, and that's probably probable cause for that. But to get location data is a whole different picture. Because location data conveys, of course, not only where the phone was at the time of the murder, but where the phone was and therefore where the holder of the phone was for days and days before the murder. And to get that information, the police need probable cause to believe that that information um, is tied to this murder. And they jumped the gun by asking for that. If they had gotten... Counsel, but didn't they have evidence that there was a phone call... Um, from this particular phone right before the victim was murdered and there was evidence that um, that phone call told the victim where to go. So to me that connects it with, with the murder. That makes location um, crucial. Uh, it, it would, Your Honor, except I don't believe that the warrant or that the application has the last thing you said it says they agreed to meet at 34th Avenue and Morgan Avenue, which we know that's where the um, where the murder happened. But there's nothing in the application that says uh, the person on the other end of the phone told the decedent to meet there. Um, in fact, there's very little in the application about what's going on here at all. For example, the application doesn't say this was a drug deal. Um, this was so-and-so owed so-and-so money. Mr. Harvey owed some people money. Because at the time the police were writing this application, of course, the surviving victim, Mr. Andrews, was maintaining that this had nothing to do with drugs at all, and this was all about a $100 gambling debt. So if the warrant had said, for example, uh, if the application had said, um, uh, these parties agreed to meet up to settle a drug debt. Uh, Mr. Harvey owed Mr. Andrews and or Mr. Johnson, um, by, his, by Mr. Harvey's account, it's several thousand dollars. Um, Mr. Harvey and Mr. Andrews talked. This is where they arranged to meet. Sure, that would be a lot more there to support probable cause for the location data. But what we have here is just, yep, this was a call that happened, and it happened about seven minutes before um, the murder. Now, that seven minutes is kind of a long time. You can place a lot of calls in seven minutes. One of the witnesses in the application says it's the last call um, that uh, Mr. Johnson, the decedent, had made. Um, but the phone, there's nothing in the phone records that confirm that. So what's missing on the guts of it um, is a connection to um, the location data specifically. And you can use um, this court's decision, I believe the case name is Holland, it's cited in our brief, um, which is, I believe, the one case where this court looks at nexus and probable cause for a search warrant for an electronic device as a, as a comparison. Because in Holland, uh, the victim of the murder had fallen down the stairs, and she was either pushed by her husband or she fell. Um, and in that case, the husband told the police um, that his phone contained a Google search of something along the lines of, what happens if you push my wife down the stairs? And the police put, had that information when they sought a warrant for the electronic contents of Mr. Holland's phone to confirm that information. That's probable cause. Uh, and this court, of course, held that is probable cause, and that is probable cause. But the police didn't have anything like that here about this phone. They had all kinds of probable cause that Mr. Harvey was the shooter. Of course, the surviving victim had identified Mr. Harvey as the shooter, and he was in custody at the time this order was sought. No problem there. But the phone number they have doesn't come up as Mr. Harvey's name in the call log or in the victim's contact list, doesn't come up as his nickname, comes up with a bunch of letters that could be similar to his name, could be similar to lots of other things, but it's not his name and it's not his nickname. So what they should do then 
is get the subscriber information. If they get the subscriber information and confirm that it's Mr. Harvey's phone, then they probably have probable cause to get the location data. But they didn't do that. They jumped the gun and got all of it at once, which includes every place Mr. Harvey had been in the preceding three days. Every doctor's office, every girlfriend's house, every other girlfriend's house, every private piece of information that the Supreme Court in Carpenter says we need to protect from the government by a robust probable cause finding and not the kind of order issued under this statute, which is very, 28, which is very facially similar to the federal statute at issue in Carpenter um, that, the, that the U.S. Supreme Court says that's no good. With the exception that I agree that there is a, uh, what I would call a boilerplate probable cause finding here, the statute um, at issue does not require that. And so the signing judge, when he's looking at this word salad of applications, I mean, the, the, the application um, says things like, on paragraph two, it says that the police believe that the person is using the phone to commit a crime. Well, we know that's not true. Um, not at the time, he's in custody. Um, it says that the phone is in a known or unknown location. I don't know, everything in the world is in a known or unknown location. So the issuing judge um, has to look at what, you know, what are they asking me to do and why are they asking me to do it? And the issuing judge here would look at the forms given to him and say, okay, 28. Uh, 28 says, um, no problem. You just need a reasonable connection to the crime, signed. Um, but they wanted a lot more than 28 authorizes them to get. And that's why, um, this, in addition to the fact that there's no probable cause making the search unreasonable under the Fourth Amendment, the fact that the search was conducted illegally under state law makes it both illegal under state law and, I think, unreasonable under the Fourth Amendment. It would be an odd situation to say that an illegal search under state law is, is, is reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. That seems a little backwards. Um, usually we would have the opposite. We would have a search that is lawful under federal law, but state law provides more protections. In this case, the state is saying, well, it might have been illegal under state law, but it was lawful under federal law. That doesn't make any sense. And so under either theory, um, the evidence was illegally obtained. And the state does not, uh, I think correctly, in its brief to this court, does not even try to argue that the admission of that evidence was somehow harmless beyond a reasonable doubt, because it wasn't. Uh, this was the most powerful piece of what the prosecutor called scientific evidence um, at Mr. Harvey's trial that the prosecutor used both to confirm uh, Mr. Andrews' account of events and to uh, expressly and repeatedly disprove Mr. Harvey's testimony and his alibi defense. There was no way for Mr. Harvey to um, debate that, and he really couldn't, given the science. And so there's no way to say that the impact of that evidence um, on the jury, in this case, is harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and you can look to your decision in expose, um, where the, uh, this court held that uh, illegally or improperly admitted evidence was harmful, even though similar evidence was also admitted. Um, you can look to the United States Supreme Court's decision in Fulminante, which talks about multiple confessions. Uh, confession A is proper, confession B is not. Um, not harmless beyond a reasonable doubt, because confession B um, really corroborates um, and the impact of uh, confession A, and the impact on the jury is great. And the same thing is true here. Um, the issue, of course, is not um, whether the evidence would be sufficient with Mr. Andrews' testimony alone. That would be an issue for a new trial. Um, the issue is uh, the impact of this evidence, and, and as I said, uh, the state does not even attempt to argue um, that, this, that this error was in any way harmless. So we would ask you to reverse on that ground alone. Um, I'd like to turn to the Batson issue if, if the court doesn't have any more questions about the warrant um, and the application, rather, the order. Um, you starting know, I, at I, do have, I guess I do have a question uh, sure. about the order slash warrant. Yes. Um, it looks like the motion did mention 626A42, mentioned it. And then in response to the forfeiture argument that opposing counsel makes, in your reply brief, you say the state has the burden of proving the police lawfully obtained evidence that the state wishes to introduce a trial. I know that's the, um, the state has that burden constitutionally, um, but in the statutory argument, who has the burden to show that the evidence was lawfully obtained? The state does, Your Honor. Um, 
the lawfully obtained part um, comes right from Rasmussen and from Needham, and this court has never distinguished in the pretrial burden context between constitutional arguments and state constitutional arguments or state statutory I, arguments. I have that part of your reply brief in front of me, and, it was, and I haven't looked up Needham and, and Rasmussen versus Tehash. Was that a constitutional issue? Or yes, was it they a statutory are. issue? Uh, Rasmussen is for sure. I'm almost positive Needham is as well. Yeah, Needham's a Miranda issue. So they are both, they are both uh, constitutional cases. Um, but our rules of procedure uh, certainly don't put the burden on the defense um, to do anything other than notice what the issue is. And it, it wouldn't make any sense, I don't think, I respectfully suggest, um, to have in a single hearing uh, the burden be on the one party for issue A and a different party for issue B on different theories to suppress or exclude the same evidence. Um, we're talking about the cell phone location data. Um, it's the same piece of evidence. Um, look, for example, at the Frymac issue. Um, the defense also moved to exclude the cell phone evidence under, uh, under Frymac and under Rule 702. And in that setting, this court has been clear that the proponent of the evidence, in that case the state, has the burden of proving admissibility. And so the proponent of the evidence, I think, always has the burden of proving admissibility, at least where the issue is objected to and brought to their attention, which is what Needham's about. So I couldn't show up here on appeal and argue something completely new that had never been brought to the state's attention. But when it is, the burden's on the state. Well, to be fair, though, the argument you made below, I mean, you didn't argue below what you're arguing to us. You didn't argue to the district court Point 0.42 was not satisfied, and, and point 0.28 doesn't let the state do what they're doing. You said to the district court, analyze this order as a warrant. Yeah. It's deficient on probable cause. I think that, that is true, Your Honor. That is what the memo says. But the defense attorneys, so there's several documents at issue here. First is the motion to suppress, um, which does say they're asking for suppression under 28 and 42 in addition to the Fourth Amendment. There was no response to that motion. Then there's a memo which also says they're asking for suppression under both of those and then memorializes or argues the probable cause issue, but doesn't say, it doesn't like, withdraw any argument under 28 or 42, nor does it relieve the state of its burden uh, once it's been noticed um, to prove that. Well, and the other problem here, it seems to me, is we can't tell what the district court thought the defendant Correct. was asking the district court to do because there's no written memo explaining. I think that's, that's true, Your Honor, and that's why I think in the end, um, even if this court has uh, difficulties with how defense counsel raised this issue, um, the court can still consider it for several reasons. It's a question of law. The facts are undisputed. We could consider it under the plain error rule. Well, not even under the plain air rule, Your Honor. I mean, when you, when you look at legal questions, um, uh, for example, in the, in the Williams case, um, you looked at unobjected to hearsay evidence. Um, I don't, I, let me back up. I don't know of a case that applies plain air to a suppression issue. Perhaps there is one. I'm not familiar with it. But you can consider the merits of the issue because it's been squarely presented to you, the state has an adequate opportunity to brief it, and it's no disservice to the district court because the district court here um, barely issued an order at all, um, let alone went through. If the district court had issued an order, a, a full-throated order saying, hey, by the way, I'm not really seeing a full statutory argument here, so I'm not considering that, that, would, that might be a different question, um, but that's not what it, happened here. It seems to me, uh, Mr. Butler, as well, and you mentioned this in your reply brief, um, we've shown some latitude on this forfeiture issue recently, Reese being the, the most uh, recent case. Yes, So Your Honor. where the state never even argues one particular theory uh, to us, to our, our court, but we allow that to proceed. That, that's true, Your Honor. Um, and, and there's a, a well-worn quote from, I think it's Heneskala about, I think that's how it's pronounced, about how the court's obligation is to consider the merits of issues uh, regardless of the uh, uh, downfalls of, of counsel. And so, of course, we have issue preservation rules and plain error rules and all kinds of rules, and, and no one's asking you to throw those out the window. Um, but when, when you have a, a narrow issue like this um, that is squarely presented, that is legal, and for which the state is not deprived of anything, it's not like they could have called witnesses to fix a factual problem here. If that had been the case, then yeah, it would be unfair to consider it. But that's not true here. We, we're all operating under the four corners of the application um, and the order that was issued. 
Uh, on the Batson issue, um, unless, of course, unless the court has further questions on the order issue. Um, on the Batson issue, uh, the standard of review uh, should be de novo uh, because the district court misapplied Batson in several crucial ways. And uh, so I want to ask you about that right sure. off the bat. Isn't this case more like, and I don't know how to say it, is it Anya Lobi um, mm -hmm. than Pendleton? Because although the district court technically, you know, it should have stopped right after the prima facie and made its determination there, mm -hmm. it's pretty clear that it, the district court found there was no prima, prima facie showing. It did, it first talked to the defense counsel about it. And then, without ruling, it went a little bit to the state to see what the reasons were. But then it clearly said, I, for these reasons, I find there was no prima facie case. So given our precedent, um, don't, don't we still give, under that Anya Lobi, don't mm -hmm. we still give the district court that abuse of discretion review? No, Your Honor. This case isn't, is much more similar to Pendleton than it is to Anilobe because the district court here didn't just listen to the state. If, if the district court had just heard the state's argument, um, maybe that'd be some technical violation of, of Batson. The district court, one of the reasons the district court found no prima facie case is because it considered the state's argument for why it had struck the juror as part of its substantive ruling for no prima facie case which is exactly what Batson says you are not supposed to do. The only thing the district court's supposed to do in prima facie case in step one is to look at the facts, hear from the defense counsel, that's um, from Johnson versus California, um, and decide whether there could be an inference of discrimination, of striking because of the color of the juror's skin. That's it. That's not what the district court here did. The district court said, well, I think I know why they really struck this guy because they just told me. That's not prima facie case, that's some other thing. And so that error, um, in addition to two others, um, well, there's that error, um, and the district court also never engages in step three, just completely ignores it. So step three is the wane of um, the inference of uh, striking because of the color of the juror's skin against any race-neutral reason that the prosecutor may have elicited. The district court here just stopped at race-neutral reason and then stopped. And that's an error in the Batson application as well, and prevents and, and then moves this case, um, like Pendleton, moves this case into uh, de novo review and independent review of the record. Um, under that independent review, this court should really have little trouble uh, concluding that the defense here did make a prima facie case. Number one, uh, juror 18 was obviously a person of color. That was undisputed. Um, juror 18 sure looks like an ideal prosecution juror. Um, not only is he smart and intelligent, but he had been the victim of a robbery. His friend had been murdered. Um, for very non-cynical reasons, those are people uh, prosecutors often like to have on criminal juries because they might see the world through the lens of the victim or the alleged victim um, and might help you know, sway the case that way. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I mean that as that's honest trial strategy. That's okay. Um, and I think one of the things you can look at here, uh, both for prima facie case and for the next step, which is, is there a race-neutral reason, is how many times the prosecutor brings up race in his questioning of this juror. The juror never brought up race in the questioning with the district court or the defense attorney. But once we get to, I'll call it cross-examination, once we get to the prosecutor and the juror, a large number of questions are about race. Uh, out of the blue, the prosecutor says to the juror, do you think an African-American man can get a fair trial in the United States? Completely non-sequitur question. And the juror says something like, well, yeah, I hope so. And then says something like, you're kind of scaring me with that question. Why are you asking me that? And so then they go through that. And then later the prosecutor says, uh, well, you know that African-Americans have been historically mistreated. And the juror says, yes. And the prosecutor says, would you have an X to grind against the state for that past mistreatment? And the juror's response, on the, you can read it, in the, even in the transcript, is kind of stuttering. He says, why? And then later, when the prosecutor's talking to the juror about the juror's very legitimate and well-supported and well-documented concerns about occasional dishonesty by police officers, the prosecutor, it's the prosecutor who says to the juror, well, can you get beyond race, or can, can you get beyond race on this? And the juror says, I never said white police officers. I said police officers. It's the prosecutor who continually injects race into this questioning. 
before he strikes this juror for purportedly because of the juror's distrust of um, police officers. And those questions speak very heavily, both to is there a prima facie case here um, that the juror is struck because of the color of his skin, and actually to all of the issues. Um, the juror's concern about police officer credibility um, is very similar to the concern in McRae um, about whether the system is fair. Um, in that case, the juror said, you know, she didn't think the system was always fair. And the prosecutor um, struck her from the jury panel purportedly for that reason. Now, that is sort of facially race neutral. I don't think the system is fair. That has nothing to do with being black. But what this court recognized is that when a concern like that is so tied up in a person's racial background or experience because of their race, it is essentially, it can be used essentially as a proxy for race, and it is not a race-neutral reason. This court held that in 1992. In 2017, the state of Washington Con passed the... Counsel, in, in fairness... Oh, I did that once in a jury trial. When I, I, I when did it too. When, in a I jury was trial. A, when I was a prosecutor, so don't worry about there it. was a jury staring at me. <laughs> well, it's only the Supreme Court staring. Yeah, at me, no, so we I'm not and, so and, and we know you very well, so don't worry about it. Go ahead, Your um, Honor. I'm sorry. Well, McCray, um, you know, McCray seemed to me to be an unusual case because you had a number of things coming together, and it seemed there the problem with the prosecutor was that he was really exaggerating what the what the witness had said. You know, like kind of it wasn't a fair representation of of was it a her? I think I think it's a her. Yeah, of her concerns in McCray. Um, you know, that may, be, that may have been part of the, as the facts of McRae developed, um, but this court's holding in McRae is that where the um, reason for the strike is a reason that could apply to a large percentage of black people um, or people of any other race, but particularly black people, um, then it is not a race-neutral reason. And that, so the court doesn't say, well, we're, we're calling this a not race-neutral reason because we think you exaggerated the juror's concern. The court went right to the heart of the matter and said, um, yeah, you know, because here's the problem. What's the substantive problem? If this is a race-neutral reason, then the prosecutor can strike huge numbers of African-American people from jury pools, and we won't have as many African-American people on jury pools. Um, and the trial court here recognized this. That's what's so um, compelling about this case. The trial court agreed that this was true and that um, African-American people did have a large percentage of uncomfortable or, or unpleasant experiences with police. And then they bring that into jury selection. And then as the trial court said, well, that just gives the state a reason to kick them off the jury. And the trial court shrugged his shoulders and said, well, that's ironic. But, you know, what am I supposed to do about it? Um, well, no, that's not just ironic. It's illegal. And not only is it illegal under Batson, it's illegal under McRae. And this court's recognized for almost 30 years that it's been illegal. So the answer is not, uh, oh, hey, I know this, this happens a lot, and, and African-American people express these concerns, and then prosecutors just kick them off the jury. Um, that's the trial court's phrase, kick them off the jury. Um, but shrug your shoulders. The answer is, under McRae, that's not a race-neutral reason to exclude a person of color from our jury service. And if it is, and if this, and if, if this kind of thing is condoned and, and endorsed um, by, and the only way to not do that is to reverse the conviction, um, you know, the people who distrust the system, um, people who are marginalized from the system, people like this juror who has no criminal background, no, there's no other reason he can't serve. He's not biased. You know, he, this, the state never moves to strike him for cause, for example. So if a juror comes in and says, I hate the police. I hate the police so much because of all these things they've done to me that there's no way I can listen to their testimony and be fair. Then that juror is biased. And that juror has actual bias and cannot sit, no matter what the juror's race is. But that's not what we're talking about here. Um, we're talking about a, a person who, like many people uh, of his background, has had a series of negative experiences that has colored his view of the world and, is, and are based in reality. It's also not based in just some preconceived animus. Um, it's based in reality. And to strike the juror for that reason uh, violates the Constitution. In, in your last minute, I do have a question on the um, 
the uh, technical, scientific and technical issues. Certainly, uh, Fry, the Frymac question, and that is this: um, have, have we? Is is there any decision in Minnesota, district court or otherwise, um, or appellate court that has actually conducted um, a Frymac uh, examination of the, these location issues, particularly with respect to? Um, the more advanced technology that was used here, but but also with respect to the more um, general underlying use of it? The answer is no, Your Honor. Not, not an appellate decision. I can't speak to every district court order. Um, but one of the reasons that Judge Bransford granted the Fry-Mac hearing in this case is that she realized that that was true um, and that this court in I believe it's Hall, um, had said that just because something had been used many times, um, if it had never been tested under Fry-Mac and had never had a Fry-Mac hearing on it, that's not a reason to deny a Fry-Mac hearing. And so that's, that, I think, is one of the reasons why a Fry-Mac hearing in this case was held. And it's one of the reasons why the issue is, is so important and why the state dropped the Oh, see, I'm out of time. Counsel, yes, Your Honor. The Chief Justice has allowed me to ask one last question. I was intrigued by your observation back on um, the, the statutory suppression issue, that we don't apply plain error on suppression. And I was wondering, why wouldn't that be true? Well, I think it is because, and I'm referring to a case we handed down in June, State versus Vasquez, that we say a defendant may preserve a claim of evidentiary error by making a pretrial motion to exclude the challenged evidence or by objecting at trial. A defendant's objection to the admission of evidence preserves review only for the stated basis for the objection or the basis apparent from the context of the objection. So the burden is on the defendant to object and make a specific objection, which is probably why we don't apply plain error. Sure. It's I, we apply forfeiture. I agree with you that the initial burden is on the defendant to object and state the basis for the objection to the admission of the evidence. I think that's, but that's, so if in this I don't case, know if that's a burden or just a, an issue, uh, putting the issue out there in front of the, so if the district court. In this court. case, the defense just referenced point four two, but didn't really say it was objectionable under point four two because it wasn't a warrant. And in fact, said treat it as a warrant. Might that not just be forfeiture, but also invited error? No, I don't, Your Honor, may I sure. respond? I see I'm out of time. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't think it's, it's either. First of all, invited error um, doesn't apply if it is plain error. So if you apply plain error, um, you would get there anyway. Number two, it's not an invited error because the, district, the defense attorney didn't say, oh, I think this is admissible under the statutes, but I only want to focus on the Constitution. That would be invited error, inviting the judge to say it's admissible under the statutes. Um, and number three, the, the defense attorney here did, in fact, say, I want suppression pursuant to 28 and 42. Now, he then focused on the, on the constitutional issue and called it a warrant. I agree and, with and that. focused on probable cause. He did. He focused on probable cause. But he said, I want suppression pursuant to these other statutes. And the district court never said, one way or the other, what it was doing. Um, and so I think the issue was fully presented. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. You have five minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Schmidt. <laughs> I am not. May it please the court, counsel, John Schmidt, assistant Hennepin County attorney on behalf of the state of Minnesota. Appellant was properly convicted of first degree murder and attempted first degree murder for killing OJ and attempting to murder AA. Cell phone evidence was properly obtained, properly admitted, and the district court did not clearly err in denying the Batson challenge. We ask this court to affirm. Regarding the properly obtaining the cell phone evidence, the focus of this court should be exactly where the focus of it was at the district court on probable cause. That was the focus, uh, that's what the defendant asked the district court to rule on. Um, although yes, the statutes were cited, the memorandum and the specific objection that was raised to the district court was, this needs to be supported by probable cause you should analyze this as if it were a warrant. Um, in particular, the defense counsel said, this has all of the trappings of a search warrant and therefore accordingly, must accordingly be analyzed as a warrant. And in that cited to 
the state constitution, the Fourth Amendment, and within that, cited to the statutes. So within the statutory analysis, the defense is asking the court to analyze this as a warrant. So the focus should be on whether or not probable cause existed to obtain the cell phone evidence. Well, let's say there's another argument that, that is not articulated by defense counsel, which is the uh, cops should have proceeded under 0.42 instead of 0.28, 0.42 instead of 0.28. Um, how do we analyze that argument now made to us? Is it forfeiture? Do we analyze it under plain error? Um, I even threw out the idea of invited error. It's, uh, what's, your, what's your assessment? Number one, it's forfeited. Uh, this, this court has been very clear that uh, issues need to be litigated below. This was not litigated below. What was litigated below was probable cause. So the issue should be deemed forfeited. If this court were to address How is the that consistent with what we did in Reese? Uh, I, I think you can address things in the interest of justice. So if you, you that the court could address the issue, I certainly have the power to address the issue. But given how this was framed at the district court, how it was analyzed, the, the crux of even the appellant's brief here is primarily about probable cause. That should be the focus and it should be deemed forfeited. If you were to get into that of the issue, of the statutory interpretation. The, the question now as it exists today of how was it properly obtained is also a probable cause analysis. Post Carpenter in the world that we are now, it says you need probable cause in order to obtain the cell phone, this type of cell phone evidence. And in the post Carpenter world, we're in a, this, is, this case represents a small uh, range of cases where it was obtained pre-Carpenter and now we're in a post-Carpenter world. And post-Carpenter, probable cause is the standard. And so still, even under today's analysis with Carpenter, we're looking at probable yeah, cause. Yeah, but Carpenter's constitutional. The, the statutory argument is basically the, the state should have proceeded under 0.42 rather than under 0.28. On that straight statutory argument, um, what's your response on the merits? On the straight statutory argument on point 28 allows for disclosure of electronic communication. Now the disclosure of the electronic communication tells you when you get those records, it tells you the cell phone tower that it's connecting to. Within that, that tells you that is how the FBI agent uses those records to determine location. And in the application itself, location, cell site, or located was mentioned at least six times. So there's no question that location was part of the records that this affidavit was seeking. It's right in the title of the application. Application for the disclosure of subscriber cell site. That is the location data that we're talking about. The way it works is the phone either connects or it doesn't. There is no error in a phone connecting to a cell site tower. Once it connects to a tower, the police, the FBI agent can use those records to locate a general area of where that phone was located at the time when it was uh, used. So there's no question from what the application and the affidavit asks here is they are looking for the location of when, location of the device when it was used. Well, yeah, but that's my question. Person. Wouldn't it have been... Um better to proceed under point four two, which is captioned electronic device location information. I mean, isn't, isn't that the logical statute under which you proceed? But if you, if you contrast point four two with four, point two eight, point, point four two is a tracking warrant. And if you look at the timing of that, it, it reads that it is a real-time tracking of somebody who is at large currently, that they're investigating a suspect. When you, and specifically into that, the timing under subdivision three shows that it's real-time, that the tracking warrant is not to exceed 60 days. So That's a forward-looking okay, type. So point four two only applies for forward-looking? It, I mean, and the way that timing requirement reads, it certainly appears that way. So how do you... How do you ever get this location data? Because 0.28 says you can't get it. And 0.42, you're now telling me, is only for forward-looking tracking data. So there's no statutory authority for getting this information. And then that's where we're in the probable cause analysis. But the state has issued statutes saying 
the rules around which you can get this data. And what you're telling me is there's no authority under either statute to get this location data. I'm saying under .42, it, it, at a minimum, it's unclear. And that, that the, le the legislation needs to be revised. Because even if you but look to- But didn't you just say it's only for forward-looking data because it's tracking data? It, it certainly appears that way, because if you look at subdivision three and the timing, it also talks about extensions of a tracking warrant. It can be extended up to 60 days. The timing requirements of, of how much data you are allowed to get in a tracking warrant is, seems to be all forward-looking. So are you so, telling us there's a hole in these two statutes? I am. It appears so to be that the that state has no authority to get this information. Under, a, under something supported by probable cause, they do. You can get it through a warrant. You can get it through this application. You can get it supported by probable cause. And they proceeded under .28 because that is the same sort of uh, information that you get where, the, where a phone connects to a cell site tower. But doesn't .28, what about that language in subdivision 3D that says the government can't get location information? And, and that's, that's where it does look to be like 4-2 should be something that would apply. But again, the timing of that appears to be off. Um, at, a, at a minimum, even if you well, proceed... Well, Council, just to be clear, the, the argument that we're having right now, that these statutes, I mean, that argument wasn't ever pressed. I mean, this, it wasn't pressed to the district court. It wasn't pressed in briefs. I mean, there isn't any argument here that... I mean, the argument here is all about probable cause, and you proceeded under the wrong order. I mean, under the, under the wrong statute. Correct. That, I mean, that, and that should be the focus of the entire argument is probable cause. Now, if, if proceeded under the wrong statute, under .42 versus .28, there, there could be... But as uh, I understand your argument, they didn't proceed under the wrong statute. There's no statute under which they could have proceeded, you, what, under which the government could have proceeded. And, and again, these... Number one, this issue is forfeited. It should be addressed by probable cause because that is exactly what was raised below. Number two, post-Carpenter, it's still probable cause. Um, number three, when you're contrasting 0 .28, 0 .24, or 4.2, excuse me, um, it, there does seem to be some problems with the statutes. But even under 0 .42 subdivision six, and this is the point that appellant is raising to say that um, it needs to be excluded, uh, it's about obtaining the information. The evidence is only excluded if you obtain the information in violation of the statute. Now, obtaining the information uh, is supported by probable cause. So even if it were under subdivision 42, and that's the proper route to get this information, it's the standard and the focus is, did this, is this uh, application, is this order, supported by probable cause. So as I understand yes. your forfeiture argument, essentially it is um, maybe neither statute provides statutory authority, but the argument that the legislature has comprehensively legislated here and then any holes don't have, do not have any statutory authority and may not be used, that argument was not made below. Correct. Okay. And, and specifically, not only was it not being below, but it was saying, analyze this as a warrant citing to these statutes. And that's at page five of the memorandum supporting uh, the motion to exclude. And that is their specific basis for this objection. Um, but again, even if we're looking at point four two and the wrong statute was used here, how the evidence was obtained uh, is the only way that that gets excluded. The rest of the statute is dealing with record-keeping functions that come afterwards. The evidence was obtained and was supported by probable cause. The affidavit, particularly, is quite detailed, as any probable cause um, affidavit seeking a warrant uh, is. This affidavit talks about um, the, the officer's training and experience. This affidavit talks about Specifically, that O.J. spoke with Harvey, that Harvey, and then O.J. identified that Harvey shot, um, or excuse me, that O.J. spoke with Harvey, and then that A.A. identified that Harvey shot him. Um, and he specifically identified a picture of Harvey. There's clearly a nexus between that phone and the appellant. In addition, the timing of the calls 
also supports a probable cause finding. Shots, the, the spot shotter technology recorded shots fired at 12.07 um, a.m. The call um, from OJ to, or N-I-G-E, uh, at this specific phone number was made at 11.58, 16 seconds for 37 seconds of that call, and again at 11.59 and four seconds for one minute and six seconds. And seven, eight minutes later, uh, one person was murdered, a second person was attempted to be murdered. So under any standard, whether you're looking at point four two, whether you're analyzing this as a warrant, this is supported by probable cause. The cell phone evidence was properly obtained. Unless the court has any other questions about the cell phone evidence being obtained, I'll move to the Batson analysis. The, the court should also affirm under the Batson analysis, and it should be at least as to issue one on the prima facie case, a clear error standard. Um, and the court correctly ruled that there was no prima facie showing. Under Rainier's, this court has said there are two things for a prima facie showing. Number one, the member of a racial minority was excluded. And number two, the circumstances of the case raise an inference that the exclusion was based on race. Here, the circumstances of this case do not show there is an inference of racial uh, discrimination for exclusion. Both all the victims involved were African-American. And as this court has said in Stewart and Angus, there were no racial overtones. The similar experiences that the juror had uh, with the defendant, as this court has said in Bailey, do not make the strike race-based. The state had already accepted one African-American on the jury who did not share the views that police lie, as this uh, juror had, ex had expressed did not share the views that police were, quote unquote, a gang. Uh, in addition, this juror also expressed the view that uh, he had been robbed at gunpoint and, and said that he didn't think that that was that big of a deal. And that was something that this, this, uh, the prosecutor said that also supports my reasoning well, for wanting he, to strike. Well, he said that he thought that happened more often. I don't know that it's fair to say not that big a deal, but he, he thought it happened to more people than being right. robbed does. And, and victims of crime react to crime in many different ways. Some people can shrug it off and it doesn't bother them. Some people, it, they live with that for the rest of their lives and they have PTSD from it. So his, his reaction to that is, I'm, I'm not trying to comment on that's inappropriate in any way, shape, or form. No, but, I agree, it's unusual. But yes. let me ask you, um, um, Mr. Butler said that there were questions that this particular juror was asked um, that other people were not. How do you, how, that seemed to me to be uh, evident from the transcript. How do you respond to that? Well, the, the trial court made a specific finding, and this is at addendum 49 of the appellant's brief. And the court said, quote, I saw nothing in the way that Mr. Tudor was questioning that juror that was any different than what the way he was questioning any other juror. The district court was in the best position at this point to view the prosecutor, view all of the jurors who came before, and analyze uh, the credibility, analyze whether there were differences in it. Uh, a cold reading of the transcript certainly may highlight those sorts of things, but also those questions came after he talked about the robbery, after he talked about the police lying for one another, after he talked about the police uh, acting like a gang. So those, those questions came later, but the district court's finding of fact on that issue is not clearly erroneous. Mr. Schmidt, I wonder though, how does that square with Mr. Butler's uh, 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 telling us, and, and the transcript supports this, the comments about, well, do you have an ax to grind because you're African American? I mean, that, that series of questions um, were, are, are very troubling, it seems to me. And maybe those are questions that shouldn't be asked in the future. Those are, um, again, this, this doesn't, the district court's finding on that isn't clearly erroneous, and one African-American juror had already been accepted onto the jury at that point. A second African-American juror was accepted later, both deliberated and found the appellant guilty. So when taking into the whole of the context, um, and under Wilson in particular, when, um, 
that doesn't show a pattern of uh, discrimination such that a prima facie case was made. Uh, the, the court's analysis could end after the prima facie showing uh, because the district court was correct that there was no prima facie showing made here. If the court continues, the um, race-neutral reason uh, should also be under a clear, clearly erroneous standard because the court did rule on that. And under the race-neutral reason, the prosecutor said the robbery at gunpoint um, and the police lying and the police viewing the, uh, viewing the police as a gang are the reasons. Those reasons do not need to be persuasive or plausible. It just needs to have the explanation, and that was certainly met here. If the court continues... Can I, just on the, viewing the police as a gang, so how, uh, tell me how that plays in here. Like, was there any question in the case that the, the police acted inappropriately? I mean, I can see in a case of, you know, where, I guess I just leave the question that way. The, a big portion of the state's case here was about the police investigation. And so the police credibility is a huge portion of the entire case, including- Because of the electronic cell records and that kind of thing. The electronic cell records, the investigation, finding um, Mr. Harvey, all of that was a big part of the, the investigation. So, so those comments in particular, and particularly the comment was always a gang in terms of their line for people they don't even know to protect one another. So that- I guess that's the question I'm raising. There's no indication of that in this case. Well, the, the, the issue comes down to Mr. Harvey says, I wasn't even there. The police say he was, so then it's a, you have a credibility sort of battle, and are they lying to protect other officers who say, yes, he was there? So there's a, a credibility determination the jury's going to have to make there. Counsel, I'd like to visit with you a little bit about the Frymac issues. Um, I'm wondering here, uh, we have a judge who orders a Frymac hearing. The only witness that is called by the state is someone who's clearly unqualified to testify as to Frymac issues, uh, and I don't mean that in any way to be critical of that witness. I mean, he's obviously a very qualified uh, law enforcement official in various other ways, but he admits that it's the police community that finds this uh, particular evidence to be um, uh, uh, respectable, responsible, etc. Uh, not the scientific community. There's really no evidence here. Uh, why, why, why isn't this? Why isn't this just sort of an automatic reversal and and, and a do-over? I mean, what, what do we do with that? Uh, several points here. Number one, it's this technology. Frymac doesn't apply in the first place, as the trial court found here. Number one, the technology is not novel. This isn't new. This isn't something that has no precedent. Um, but but we have a we have an order from a district court that says. We're, we're supposed to have a Frymac hearing. I, I mean, I, we, I think we start there. So I, I, I think it's very difficult to say later, well, that was, that's a mistake. We're not going to have one now. And but, then he holds the hearing anyway. But that's also in the court's order. Yes, it holds a hearing, but after the hearing says Frymac is inapplicable. That, so basically the hearing was unnecessary. Um, and, and there were 50, I cited 15 cases from this court that used this technology. And I find that completely unpersuasive. Uh, I mean, <laughs> the question is, does the technology work or not? And um, I, as I exchanged my conversation with Mr. Butler, there's, there's never been a Frymac hearing here in Minnesota, right? I, I, I'm not aware of a Frymac hearing on this issue, but the... the Counsel, am I correct to say that the district court held the hearing, but at the conclusion found that it was more 702 evidence and not Frymac did not apply? That's right. And, and within that, as, as appellant's counsel noted, you still get into the 702 foundational reliability, which is the second prong of Frymac. But yes, they held the hearing and said, this isn't Frymac, this isn't scientific, this isn't novel. And as a result, we're looking at 702, but then went on further and said, even if Frymac were to apply, here is the analysis, and said Frymac doesn't apply. Um, Counsel, I, I have a question. That's a complete circular, circular thing from, well, anyway, never mind. That's, that's a statement, not a question. I'll, I'll withdraw. Uh, I have a question about um, the reliability of this, um, because when I read Carpenter, 
There is a section where the Supreme Court, um, I think it's page 2219, has a whole paragraph about the accuracy of CSLI is rapidly approaching GPS level pre precision. As the number of cell sites has proliferated, the geographic area covered by each cell sector has shrunk, particularly in urban areas. In addition, with new technology, they can have the, and I'm alighting some, they can have the capability to pinpoint a phone's location within 50 meters. I mean, that's the United States Supreme Court talking about this same technology. Right. Isn't, isn't that binding on us? I mean, yes. That, that certainly is. I mean, the Supreme Court details very specifically that this is technology that can uh, be used, but it also shows that it is reliable. It is something that you can pinpoint down. And, and the reliability... The, but the point, I mean, I mean, the Supreme Court applies the federal standard. Correct. Jaber. And there are, I mean, there are federal courts seem to routinely admit this kind... And when I'm talking about this kind of evidence, what I'm talking about now is not the location information, but the drive test. Right. It seems to me the drive test, I mean, you're right that, that there are plenty of cases where uh, Minnesota courts have admitted se uh, location information, the kinds of records that came from Sprint here. But this drive test thing, that, I wonder if that isn't novel under um, the Fry-Mac rule. It might be admissible under Daubert, in the federal courts, but I just wonder if you can address that specifically. The, the drive test is, uh, it's not novel because the only thing the drive test does as a testimony laid out is it has an antenna on top of a car. And like any other cell phone, it's driving around each neighborhood and checking, is this connecting to this tower or that tower? That's all the drive test is doing and mapping out the various neighborhoods to figure out at what point does this antenna on top of the car, as if I were just, the, the officer could have done the exact same thing and walked 10 steps and made another phone call and see based on my phone call, my records, which tower is my phone now connecting to. Instead, there's an antenna on top of the car that connects to various cell phone towers. And that, that is why it's not novel, because it's no different than any other cell phone technology. It's widely accepted in the engineering. Well, if that's true, that it's no different, then why did you need it? You already had the Sprint records. You, you need to know the range of the towers. It does add something, yes, yeah. It adds something to figure out, okay, this person was, uh, this tower was connecting here, that, that creates, it, it, when you look at the expert's testimony, there's, there's a sort of range of where the towers go, and it, it sort of goes like this to the towers and out. And so it does add something to that. Council, didn't it kind of also confirm what the Sprint records said? It's like a kind of a backup to, that the towers are still connecting the same? Correct. Because as, okay. Right. It, it confirms what those records say. It finds the scope of what those towers are. And this is technology that the cell phone companies spend billions of dollars on in order to make sure their towers are accurate and they're not dropping calls, because if they're dropping calls, they're losing customers. Mr. Schmidt, what, of what relevance, and I can't remember who the witness was now, but had indicated that he had never heard of this technology. Um, where do we place that in the calculus of whether this is novel or new? It was one of the state's witnesses who testified, well, I've done this kind of, of testing, but I've never heard of the DAR kind of testing, GAR. I'm not sure. I, I can't recall which witness said that, but the F... Maybe it was okay. So that was the uh, defense's witness, I believe. Okay. And, and the FBI agent uh, testified that um, this is the technology that we use, and, and really it would end up being... I'd see him out of time if I... You can finish your thought. Finish my thought. I, um, it's really no different than if they were just walking and using their cell phone. We ask that this court affirm. Thank, Thank you, you, counsel. Mr. Butler. I try to learn from my mistakes. Try. 
Um, I only have uh, five minutes. I believe I heard the state say on the suppression issue that this um, search was completely illegal under state law. Not legal under 42, but not with illegal under anything. And if that's true, then this court should do what it did in Reese and should consider the merits of the issue and should su suppress the evidence regardless of what was raised or what was argued below. I don't um, think the state quite said it that way, but... Well, um, what they said is that none of the state statutes authorize Authorize it, right. I'm not sure that's, you know, I don't know if that's right or not, but so, if you... So let me ask you the question. Did yeah. defense counsel below raise the argument that neither state statute, 0.28 nor 0.42, yeah. authorized this uh, search? No, they did okay. not. So that, well, that, and more to the point, you never made that argument in your briefs to our court. No, but I think that's what's odd here, is that I, I read 42 as authorizing this because I read 42 as saying any location data, not just pre-existing ongoing location data, the, the reference... Um, uh, it's the definition of location data in subdivision 1E doesn't say ongoing location data. But if the, if the government's position is that 42 doesn't authorize this and 28 doesn't authorize this, then what authorized it? Then you've got an interesting issue for another proceeding of some sort. Or this court could simply consider it now. And aren't we back really again to Reese because the, there the state never raised the emergency aid exception Absolutely. to us. Absolutely. We picked that up from something that happened years earlier. Yes, you did. And, and, so. and you did it to, to benefit the government in that, in that case. And so we would simply ask for the same result. Um, I wanted to address Anya Lobe, uh, Your Honor, because you brought it up. Um, I went and looked it up, and on, um, the, the main difference, I think, between this case and Anya Lobe on the standard of review issue is that on page 347 of this court's opinion, um, the court detailed the district court's prima facie case finding in Anya Lobe, and it was simply, no, all you did was strike a person of color, all they did was strike a person of color, that's not enough for a prima facie case. So unlike the district court here, the district court judge in Anya Lobe did not base its prima facie ruling on the state's asserted reasons for the strike. That is the error that the district court made in Pendleton, and that is the error that the district court made here, and that's why de novo review and not um, some deferential standard is, is appropriate here. On the Batson issue, um, the questions are what they are. I, I agree that the district court found that the prosecutor didn't question the jurors any differently. Um, to the extent the district court was talking about tone of voice um, or mannerisms, I'll, I'll accept that. Um, but the cold record shows that th that's not true with regard to the text of the questions. Only juror 18 um, was asked if he thought an African-American man could get a fair trial in the United States. Only juror 18 was asked if he had, would have an ax to grind against the state because of treatment of African Americans. That is just a fact, and you can get that from the transcript. So if, if that makes the district court's finding clearly erroneous, I guess, at, at least as to the text of the questions. Of what um, weight, if any, is the fact, as the state reminds us, though, there was a second African American juror that was seated? None, Your Honor. No weight at all. Um, Batson is a juror-by-juror -juror case. It's a juror-by-juror -juror issue. It does not require, as I think I heard um, the state's lawyer say, a pattern of discrimination. That, that has been rejected for years and years and years. If you have a pattern, sure, but, then you have a Batson But we have violation. recognized, as part of the prima facie case determination, that the fact that there is already seated on the jury an African-American is relevant. I think, I don't know that it's, maybe not completely irrelevant. I think the case you're referring to, for one thing, Your Honor, uh, is Wilson, and Wilson applied a deferential standard. So that's different than here, where we're applying a de novo standard. Um, but it is, in the end, a juror-by-juror juror determination. And if a juror is taken off the jury because, um, at least in large part, or because of the color of the juror's skin, it doesn't matter that other jurors who are also black were seated on the juror. We're talking about this juror. Because the point is not necessarily to protect the defendant only, but it's to protect the constitutional rights of the potential juror. That's correct, Your Honor. The point is both. So even if it, the defendant's right gives way a little because the, uh, another black juror is seated, um, this juror, juror 18's rights, were still violated regardless of anything else. Counsel, what about the um, 
What about the Frymac issue? Do you, do you agree with the argument that opposing counsel made? I think the answer to that question is no. But I, <laughs> I'm interested in why. That's good. That. It's a good assumption, Your Honor. No, I do not. Uh, Your Honor, I see I'm out of time. May I respond? Um, I can sum up the, the Frymac issue um, this way. Uh, first of all, Frymac is the proper standard. If nothing else, the drive test is novel. The only witness who was qualified, the only scientific or quasi-scientific witness to testify was the sprint engineer, and the sprint engineer said he never heard of this thing before or something along those lines. So at least the drive test is novel. The whole thing is novel because it's never been tested under Frymac before, and that's what the standard this court used in Hall. So Frymac's the proper standard. Uh, number two, it's a burden issue, among other things. The state has the burden, no question about that. State has the burden at the Frymac um, hearing to prove foundational reliability and to prove reliability in this specific case. Who, who, and they didn't do that because the person is, they called didn't know anything. Who has the burden to show it's novel? The who has the burden to show it's novel? Yes. If you want to put the initial burden on the defense to make the request, that's fine, but the, the defense made the request and the district court granted it. That's not my question. My question is who has the burden to show novelty and thus trigger Frey Mac? I don't know that it's I don't know that anyone has the burden, Your Honor. Fry Mac applies to novel science. The district court here said this is novel science. That's just a question. You can decide I don't know if that's a burden issue. You can just decide that. In this Fry Mac hearing, of course, we're having the state has the burden. And the state below, of course, we're talking about what was argued below. The state after the Frymac hearing never said, oh, this wasn't even the right standard. Uh, you should only do this under 702. They thought they'd met their burden under Frymac. I think they didn't. I think this court should hold that they didn't. And I think you should reverse Mr. Harvey's conviction. Thank, thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help you've provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.